Today we have Dr. Lauren Bernstein, who is an assistant professor in the Community Medicine Program, who is also working in partnership with the College of Veterinary Medicine. Dr. Bernstein has a background in private companion animal practice and is here to discuss the incredible partnership and work being done through the Community Medicine Program at the College of Vet Med. Through this episode, our perspectives will be touching on the topic of human-animal relationships and health. So welcome, Dr. Bernstein. We appreciate your time and your willingness to be here. We're going to start today with just maybe touching on any key phrases of, or vocabulary you think our listeners should be aware of surrounding this area of work before moving forward. I have three phrases that are now becoming part of a shared language in the veterinary profession. So the first is community medicine, and we've defined this in the College of Vet Med at the U of M as a subset of access to veterinary care that focuses on animal health and well-being for owned pet animals that are living in communities with barriers to accessing veterinary care. Uh, so these animals can be concentrated like in a geographic community, or they can be in sort of self identified community, and they're encountered really in any practice setting. Um, and a lot of times these animals belong to people who also face barriers to supporting their own health and well-being needs. And then that leads us into defining what access to care is. And this is any work that makes veterinary care more universal and equitable, uh, considers individual pet and family circumstances with compassion and respect, and improves animal well-being and decreases suffering. So this is improved by reducing or eliminating barriers that get in the way of uh, animals being able to access care. And then the third key phrase that is becoming new and widely accepted in veterinary medicine is spectrum of care. And this is like an array of treatment options that are presented in a non-hierarchical way. So it ranges from things that are maybe more technologically advanced and expensive to less advanced and inexpensive, but still evidence-based and within a, a, an excellent standard of care um, from which the owner, who is like our teammate in making care plan decisions for pets, pet owner um, chooses the option that is best for their pet and their family and their beliefs and their preferences and their needs. So really just sort of titrating a care plan with the whole family in mind. So community medicine, access to care, and spectrum of care. Thank you for that introduction. I appreciate it. I guess we'll start off with just taking a moment to have you introduce yourself to make sure that anything you want our listeners to know about you, it's your time to share. So I'm a veterinarian and I'm faculty in the College of Veterinary Medicine here at the U of M. And I, I'm in a new program called Community Medicine. This program started really at the end of 2020 in the College of Vet Med and has sort of been built on existing foundations of really incredible veterinary student-run organizations that have been providing free services for underserved, minoritized, and historically excluded pet-owning communities for over a decade. Uh, so this program is now sort of a, an expansion of that formalization of those efforts in terms of the support these students have, more partnership building, et cetera. Um, and then also in this role, we are we wear a few hats. Uh, we've built out a curriculum for students in years one through three of vet school, and maybe I should back up and give uh, an overview of what vet school means and looks like. 
So students come into vet school with a bachelor's degree, and then vet school is four years long. Years one through three at the University of Minnesota, anyway, are classroom didactic learning, so preclinical work. And then the fourth year is their clinical year, so all clinical rotations and externships where they go off-site for clinical learning. Um, and then at the end of those four years, vet students, as long as they have passed their national licensing exam and have graduated, earn a license in whatever state they're practicing in, can practice the day after graduation, which is a bit different, I think, from the medical field. Um, and then if people choose to specialize, they can do internships and residencies and, and board exams and additional training. So understanding that, we, in my role now, we've built out a curriculum in years one through three to prepare students to practice along a spectrum of care, understand gaps in access to care, and work towards bridging those gaps within our own communities. And we've also started a new fourth-year clinical rotation uh, in partnership with the Animal Humane Society at their St. Paul location. And this is a nonprofit clinic that provides services to families on a sliding fee scale. So a lot of the concepts that we've now introduced into years one through three are then reinforced in a clinical setting, a real life practical setting in year four. In addition to that, we're, we're building out lots of new partnerships uh, with different universities and grassroots community organizations and a whole bunch of other people uh, to really understand the, the gap that exists in our field. Um, and then prior to this role, I was in private companion animal practice for five years in Dallas, Texas, and then um, completed a residency in veterinary public health and preventive medicine and got my master of public health at the same time. So during that residency program, really got a taste of community-based participatory research and, um, and just really learning for the first time the structural elements of my own profession and the overlap between a lot of the concepts, especially the social science concepts that I was learning in my public health courses with the career that I had been in, you know, for five years up until then. Um, and a lot of that work that's now led me into my current job as faculty has been around like really understanding my own positionality and the influence that has on just a single interaction with a pet owner and the potential greater impact on communities that that pet owner might be a part of. I could go on and on, but I will stop. <laughs> I just love this work. <laughs> It definitely shows. And I do have to say, we are very honored to have you. And oh, you are a really you. neat person. Oh, <laughs> so. that's so kind. I'm, I'm just grateful to to talk to folks that, uh, that see the value of the human-animal bonds, the importance of that across cultures. And to be speaking specifically with a public health audience, I think is really cool. Um, because I feel like for the longest time, I had to explain to people why I liked public health, why our understanding of public health in vet med is so much more than the current, we think about public health in vet med as being predominantly food safety and zoonotic diseases, but it's it's so much more than that. And that's what I'm excited to share today. I'd really like to hear your explanation for how the concepts of public health and animal, animal companionship work together well 
and then areas that might need improvement? The biggest, you know, in companion animals specifically, so I'm talking more about cats and dogs and, and the animals that are living with us in our homes, uh, since that's my particular area of expertise, public health and animal companionship and ownership related to farm animals and uh, horses, not in my area of expertise, but equally of importance but specifically around pets that, that live with us at home. Public health and animal companionship go hand in hand around keeping people physically healthy and keeping pets physically healthy. So this really refers to zoonotic diseases and uh, diseases that can be passed from animals to people, parasites, viruses, bacteria, et cetera. This is why we vaccinate our animals. This is why we put them on a regular deworming medication is not just to keep those animals healthy and keep them from um, impacting the health of the animal populations they might be in contact with at a dog park, for example, but also to keep us and our families healthy. Beyond that though, beyond zoonoses, the human animal bond is something that is specifically unique to animal companionship, right? in its benefits, its like documented benefits on our physical health and our psychosocial well-being. Uh, so some of the physical benefits in the literature um, include lower heart rates, lower blood pressure, better cardiovascular health rate. The psychosocial benefits are incredibly vast, uh, which is why we see animals you know, used in, in all sorts of ways from being emotional support to service animals to, you know, the list goes on and on. It's also something, you know, I think as students and students going through COVID, this might hit home a bit, but animals, companion animals especially, help to decrease social isolation. And they get you up and out of the house, right, to walk your dog. Uh, a lot of clients that we work with, tell us that their their pets are the reason they get out of bed every day because they have they know that they have to take care of this animal they want to take care of that animal and might sometimes be like the only reason people get out of bed as with anything there's always opportunity for growth right the veterinary profession and public health we are constantly evolving it's part of our our veterinary oath to to share advancements in our knowledge and when that knowledge is is evolving with new information, you know, that, that all sort of goes hand in hand. Uh, so some big opportunities for growth are really leaning into the people side of veterinary medicine, specifically as it relates to animal companionship. So these are the social determinants of health, trauma-informed care, improving social supports for people, whole family care, etc. It's pretty common sense to be like, yeah, you know, vet med, we love animals, duh, we wouldn't be in the field if we didn't. But we are really seeing kind of a pendulum swing in a different direction in our profession as we start to recognize that that there are big gaps in veterinary access due to a number of problems like, you know, big mental health crisis in our profession, giant um, income to debt ratios, desire for work-life balance. We've got a vet shortage going on uh, currently across the country. So there are numerous things sort of on our end of things that that make it difficult to lean into the the person elements of providing veterinary services, but those are important. Um, there's new literature out there that's telling us that the same things that affect a person's access to health and their 
risks of certain health outcomes, those are shared with the animals that live with them because that environment is, is shared, right? So social determinants of health are where, you know, how, where people live, learn, work, and play impact their health risks and outcomes. But if animals are living with people in those places where they live, learn, work, and play, we would make the logical extrapolation that that animals are also impacted by that. So we're now seeing a lot more research, a lot more data that tells us that some of the big barriers to care are human oriented, right? So geographic isolation, lack of transportation, cost, whether financial challenges are permanent or temporary, chronic or whatever, trust between a pet owner and a veterinary professional, or even an entire community and an entire veterinary profession. You know, the same things that you hear are barriers in human medicine and in public health are the same things that we experience in vet med. So incorporating that understanding into how we communicate, right? Taking a trauma-informed care approach to identify that that person who's in front of you, like you only have a teeny tiny fraction of insight into their lives and like their their family situation and and I think you know we select for in vet med we select for like high achieving perfectionists who really love animals and really love families and want to like control the outcome of a situation right so even something like taking a trauma-informed care approach where we where we know that that's going to benefit the person and the, the pet, that's something that's also hopefully going to benefit us and our profession in letting go of some of that control, giving some of that autonomy and empowerment back to the client and really taking a team-based approach. That's, that's what we do on a day-to-day basis anyway, but like naming, naming the approach, I think, is is going to start moving us in in a direction that that focuses on supporting the whole family and hopefully even ourselves. Yeah, absolutely. You covered a lot of points. And so some of this you may have to circle back to. This brings me to my next question. I know you said your specialty is most mostly our companions, like our dogs and our cats, but what sort of other interdisciplinary approaches do you think healthcare professionals and veterinary medicine can take? For example, the success of equine therapy with those with Down syndrome or autism spectrum disorder. And particularly, I um, my undergrad is in communication sciences and disorders. And so we've done speech therapy sessions where we've brought in companion animals like like a dog during their session and it's really successful. Do you see other areas of healthcare or community outreach where these companion animals can be integrated? Yeah, so speaking speaking just on companion companion animals, absolutely. Sort of bidirectionally, right? So there are places where we can integrate other folks right into our field and then we would love to be integrated right into or companion animals into people's fields. Um, so one thing that we that we do regularly with one of our student organizations is we have a social worker and social work interns at our monthly community clinics um, who are there for a number of reasons. One to to just like really observe what's happening with people, right, and really picking up on their on their specific needs that us veterinarians and our veterinary students might not necessarily be aware of. They help bridge some communication gaps between our students and clients. 
uh, whether it's around grief or additional resources that, that they might need. Um, and these types of environments are, they're high stress, right? It's a really vulnerable situation to bring any loved one, but especially an animal that means the world to you um, in to get veterinary services and to be that animal's advocate, right? Because that animal can't advocate for itself. So there's a lot of trust, right? That has to be there. And it's a really vulnerable place to be on top of the fact that it is a really abnormal environment. Our, our community clinics, these are, these don't happen in a brick and mortar clinic or hospital. They happen in borrowed community spaces, whether that's basement of a church or a bus depot or a community center or a gym, they're really abnormal environments where people like there are several tables of animals being examined at a time, right? So they're really stressful places. So our social workers have been absolutely incredible in, in uh, navigating some of the needs. Some of the other areas where companion animals are integrated into the community or should be domestic violence, shelters, drug rehabilitation programs, food shelves, and, and various grassroots organizations. Um, and then on top of that, in some of the communities that we work with in outstate Minnesota, we work closely with animal control, where animal control officers wear different, really multiple hats. Uh, so coordinating folks in that way. And then in terms of the ways in which companion animals can be instrumental in somebody's healing, right? Um, of course, you know, rehabilitation programs, et cetera, but um, there are prison dog programs where people who are incarcerated have the opportunity to train dogs for a variety of needs. Uh, so there's a lot of mutual benefit there. The dogs get trained and, and that person has, you know, autonomy over this connection with this animal. Um, there's a program at the University of Minnesota called PAWS, Pets away worry and stress. So integrating companion animals into our mental health and well-being. Um, and then there are also various programs that bring in companion animals to elder care facilities and nursing homes um, to help decrease loneliness and, and leverage the benefits of the human-animal bond. That's just a few. <laughs> Thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. Next, we're going to actually segue to your community clinics. I would like to touch on why we have community vet clinics and what the significance of these clinics um, within the community is. And then what was the vision for how they would serve the community? And has that vision been met, do you think? No, oh, those are such great questions. I might start by first explaining what our community clinics are. We have two student-run organizations that I mentioned. One is called Vet Touch, which stands for Veterinary Treatment Outreach for Urban Community Health. And these are monthly clinics uh, that operate outside out of the um, Hennepin Avenue United Methodist Church the first Sunday of every month. And we provide vaccines, core vaccines for cats and dogs. And then we've got a number of different resources. So we do have a pretty well-stocked pharmacy to treat a number of basic outpatient care conditions. And then we've got a number of point of care tests like microscopes, heartworm tests and things like that. And a lot of uh, flea tick and heartworm prevention. The primary goal of these clinics, given our proximity to, to the cities, it is in Minneapolis. So there are lots of vet clinics and resources within Minneapolis. Our primary goal is wellness, making sure that animals are vaccinated and get their flea tick and heartworm prevention and connect them to 
make people aware of resources that already exist within the community. Um, our other organization is SERBS, the Student Initiative for Reservation Veterinary Services. This is, is very similar to VetTouch in terms of the wellness services that we provide, um, but we also do spay and neuter surgeries in these borrowed community spaces. And these clinics are much more geographically isolated. We work with about six or seven different uh, sovereign tribal nations that share geography with Minnesota and South Dakota. And veterinary clinics do not exist on reservations currently for uh, a number of reasons that are very similar to inequitable access to other types of resources. So everything that we bring with us is, sorry, I should back up. We try to bring whatever we can with us, knowing that we might be the only access point to a veterinarian for many of these animals due to transportation, geographic isolation. Sometimes the closest clinic is 40 plus miles away. Um, and then when they get to a clinic, right, cost is a really huge barrier. So wellness, spay, neuter surgeries, and whatever we can feasibly do within reason while also connecting people to resources and providing those spectrum of options, right? Both of these clinics have been around for almost 12 years now, long before I was faculty here. Both have been, especially serves, have been built on a foundation of trust with and relationship building with the communities that we are serving. So serves especially my predecessor, late predecessor, Dr. Larissa Minicucci, even before serves existed, spent time going to communities and working with tribal councils and sitting with community leaders to learn about what the community wanted and needed in terms of veterinary care so that we weren't coming in telling people what they needed and then leaving without doing any sort of follow-up as to whether or not something like that was effective. So that legacy really is built into how our programs work, especially serves, and it is how we teach our students and it is how we approach every interaction. Each community that we're working with has a unique set of needs and preferences. That is what they are. <laughs> um, why do we have community clinics? already named some of those things, gaps in access to care, the shortage of veterinarians, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then the value of these clinics or the significance of bringing them to communities is that the clinics are being held in places where our clients are. So that eliminates barriers related to transportation and geography. Our clinics are free because they are student run and volunteer veterinarian supported. Um, so that eliminates the barrier of cost and hopefully works towards eliminating the barrier of access to good information and relevant information. The vision was to meet and still is to meet community identified needs for pet care in the location where pets and their families live. And I think whether or not that vision has been met is really a question I'd reflect back to the communities themselves because those needs are constantly evolving and, and people's situations and experiences are changing. 
What I can say is, you know, there are some communities, but specifically with Serbs that we've been working in partnership with since it was founded. And even in my short time being a part of this organization, I'm now seeing the same animals and families come back year after year to our annual clinic. So that tells me, right, that that family's need is being met and that we are improving access because these are healthy animals. Like in some of these communities, we're no longer seeing a majority of sick patients. We're seeing a majority of healthy aging patients that have now arthritis or dental disease that anybody would have if they've lived that long. And that feels really exciting to watch families expand and children grow up and see them bring their own pets in and be a part of the care. Like that is what having a regular veterinarian looks like in a relationship with a regular veterinarian is to be able to have that type of continuity. But that's just one community and my personal observation, but certainly a question for the communities themselves. That just warms my heart. We're going to move on to something that interests both Amanda and I, my co-hosts. We are both interested in your views on how health and culture and the relationship with animals all intersect. In particular, for example, animals can have different spiritual and emotional significance depending on one's culture. How do vets and vet students navigate that when they're working in community clinics? Yeah, I absolutely love this series of questions. And I'll, I'll first, for fear of being like long-winded, I'll first like hone in on the word culture about, you know, as it relates to what veterinary education has like historically looked like, even up until 2020. 2020 for a lot of folks, right, is what shifted narrative in our understanding of a lot of things, or at least brought those things to daily conversation with a lot of institutions, right? So that's happening in vet med too. The way culture <laughs> tends to be integrated into curriculum for vet students is people are different and we need to learn to work with that. So like that cultural competency checklist. I never like talk about this type of work as this is the cultural discussion because that risks otherwise othering and tokenizing folks. And the reality is, well, and it also creates this assumption that there's one right way of providing veterinary medicine. There's one right way about how to love and care for or exist with a pet. And that if it's not that way, everything else is different. I always like to preface with that. So I'll speak to what our curriculum is doing. And I know a lot of vet schools are moving in this direction. And I feel really grateful to be a part of a team that's really leading this in curriculum um, among veterinary schools. But we are really moving towards understanding our personal and professional identities and how these impact how we view or judge pet families or how we even view certain disease processes. And it really allows us to explore the different ways that people do exist with animals and what those animals mean to them and what good pet ownership actually means. There's this really tired expression in vet med that I don't even want to say out loud, but will for the sake of making my point that we hear all the time. And like full disclosure, I have said it, you know, when I was in practice that if you can't afford the vet, you don't deserve the pet. 
And that's a phrase that really, I have empathy, right, for my colleagues and myself for when I was in practice, because that's a phrase that comes from burnout and compassion fatigue and just, just a profession that truly is a mental health crisis. We want to do the best for our pets. And when there are all these sort of exogenous factors that are outside of the client's control and outside of our control, it feels so heartbreaking to not provide that. So the blame gets put on, right, the client and their inability. But in reality, this is a shared challenge, right? So reframing, right, what good pet ownership actually means and looks like and taking some of that burden off of you, the professional, in, in making those sort of assumptions. In these courses now, we talk about the ways in which we have individually grown up with animals and the types of experiences that shaped our desire to become veterinarians and how we think about veterinary medicine. And then we are now having students reflect that back to each other to find the ways in which their upbringing was similar or different. And we're walking through case studies where these that's also reflected in our clients. Um, so really just sort of getting students to reflect on the fact that their opinion is theirs. There's still a standard of practice to practice within, but to encourage them to lean on different ways of knowing and, and explore the ways in which like that's beneficial to just what they do every day. For the community clinic specifically, we, um, we have training that's required for our student volunteers. So communication training, et cetera, for serves specifically the organization that works in partnership with tribal nations. We have some of our community partners come down to the cities and they provide, they give a lecture that's required for all students who are planning to participate in the clinics about the history of genocide in our own region and the impact on that of that on access to health and veterinary resources, relationships with animals, relationships with the profession. And then these partners also provide training for the students on being mindful of body language and words and eye contact, et cetera, and the ways in which these could be detrimental to discussing or deciding on a care plan for that pet. And then throughout the year, we've got various webinars and meetings with our community partners so that the learning, right, is, is again, bi-directional and mutual. I think it's exactly that, like shifting this back to like this pet is a family member, the person who's making decisions with you is their advocate. And it's more than just the problem within this animal that you're trying to treat. It's it's making a plan so that when that animal leaves the clinic with their family, that plan can actually be put into place. And that, you know, the overall overall goal is healthy pets. That brings me to my final closing thought. If you had to provide our listeners with either a call to action or a final plug for a resource? What would that be? These aren't my words. My my dear friend, Marilu Chanrasmi, who's just a, a close colleague and partner in this work, she frequently teaches me and the folks that we work with that the wisdom is already in communities. And like her, I'm getting emotional even saying that, but that real partnership and real collaboration looks like community-driven solutions. And I want to like hone in on community and what that word means, right? Because that word is different to everybody. I've talked right about the needs that are within my community of veterinary medicine and, and the supports that, that we 
that we need for ourselves and understanding that people know what's best for themselves and sort of removing these layers of presumptions or or judgment and really having empathy for each other just allows for like actual collaboration and communication. So as Mari Lu says, the wisdom is already in communities and that can be interpreted in whatever way makes sense for your own community. Well, again, thank you so much for your time and your thoughts. Your work is truly appreciated. All right, so we were able to get an update from Dr. Bernstein prior to publishing that we wanted to share with all of our listeners. Vet Touch, the clinic that she spoke about being on the first Sunday of every month at Hennepin Avenue United Methodist Church, is actually moving locations beginning November 5th. They will actually be moving to the pet food shelf that our next speaker, Cassie, will talk about that's located on 25th and Minnehaha called People and Pets Together, which will be linked below in our episode description. But we just wanted to share this update and this resource in case any of our listeners were either interested in volunteering at a future clinic or needed any services for their pets. We are on the topic of human and animal relationships and the importance of those relationships to community health. And today I am very excited to announce that we are joined by Cassie Holmes, a member of the Lakurare Band of Lake Superior Chippewa Indians. She was a board member of the East Philippines Improvement Coalition, whose purpose is to create a safe community between neighbors. She is also a board member of the South Side Green Zone and vice president of the East Phillips Neighborhood Institute, EPN. So thank you so much, Cassie, for being here. We really appreciate your time and your perspective. Do you just want to take a moment to introduce yourself and anything that you want to make sure the listeners know or any fun facts about yourself that you want to share? My native name is Niwin Makwaikwe, which is Four Bears Woman. And it's really interesting, that name, because it seems like uh, there's a point in my life where I always, like, there's me, like the mama bear with three kids. Whether it's my own, our nieces and nephews that I raise that are always with me, and there's always, like, three. So uh, right now I take care of four, but one's ten, and then three of them are two and under. So it's like there's my little three cubs. So And I'm, I also have... I have two dogs and a cat, probably getting a third dog because he'll be a service animal. One of my babies live in Little Earth pretty much my whole life and which is located in the East Phillips community. That's why I sit on so many of the East Phillips boards. My first question is, can you briefly explain how you see the concept of community health and animal companionship working together well or some areas that you feel may need some improvement. And you can tailor this question to your specific community or your lived experience. The concept of community health and annual animal companionship. I will speak for being a resident at Little Earth a lot, and maybe a lot of people don't know this, but Little Earth East Phillips is one of two of the most polluted areas in the state of Minnesota. It is so bad that we actually, East Phillips had a unique law called the Clark Berglund law, the environmental justice law that talks specifically about cumulative pollution because we're so over the top. And 
you know, like we have a lot of people who are sick, a lot of people who are dying, a lot of youth. But what really don't get talked about a lot is our animals. And we have a lot of very sick animals in our community. And that's why, you know, bringing in our partnership with all our partnerships like MinSnap, Care, V-Touch, Secondhand Hounds, um, the Animal Humane Society. There's so many more, but they come in and they they come in and they really provide this amazing service that we need for our animals you know because a lot of our animals you know they're not a lot our animals like we love our animals you know they're our companions and if they're not healthy I've literally seen people in my community who would overlook their health and try their very hardest to make sure that their animal was taken care of even if it was the last 20 bucks in their pocket they were willing to spend that you know if their animal's sick and unfortunately, I had um, been witness to a cat that had ended up passing because um, all they had was $20 and they weren't able to be seen. It was a kitten. It wasn't able to be seen anywhere. And it was just devastating for the family, the kids. The mom was just so sad about it. Like it was upsetting and traumatizing to her because then when when we did get help, it was like, but is it really helping? But now she sees like they're there. You know, we have a lot of people who stepped up and was like that, that we're going to make sure never happens again, ever. And they've actually kept our promises, our trusted partners that I've mentioned and some more our pet, the free pet store offers too. I can't think of the name of it's on 25th of Minnehaha, but they've stepped up a lot. So I would, I would have to say like a lot of our trusted partners coming in, making sure our animals are taken care of. That really helps us out, you know, as human beings. It helps us to like want to come out of the house, to want to participate. You know, we've had a young lady whose dog needed to be seen and they came in and they didn't live in Little Earth, but they were, you know, it was a native family and they came in and they were like so happy over the help that they received that they ended up volunteering. And then the young daughter ended up going to vet uh, uh, tech school. Um, so, you know what I mean? Like it just, it just build up to something so beautiful for our for our people and then for our animals, you know, and to have more people that can come in and help or, you know what I mean, or that live there and can help. So it's like this really beautiful stepping stone that was created to come back into our community for our animals, for our residents. That's like, that's what sticks in my mind is like, you know, because our animals are sacred, right? Like they're sacred to us and our stories, our animal, our, it was a muskrat that went and died to get that land, you know, after the flood to get that piece of earth. And then it was put on a turtle to help create that again, you know, that space for us. So like, they're so important and so loved and they're sacred. So. I love hearing your definition of community and through your narrative. And you're absolutely right. Animals, they have a different meaning to everybody on a different level. And I love hearing about that cultural tie to to the history, just because I don't think people think about that component. So the next thing I guess we'll discuss is I'd like to touch on why we have community vet clinics and what the significance of these clinics are within the community. And we had asked this question of Lauren, who actually directed us to you for the podcast. What was the vision for how these clinics would serve the community and has that vision been met? Do you think that that vision has been met? And can you also in the same breath kind of tell us how you know Lauren and how you've got linked up to work with her? So I'll kind of start 
backwards and then to the front, then to the middle. So I met Lauren through the pet clinics and absolutely amazing human being and somebody who really listens to community. One thing about all our partners is that they were brought in and really, I want to say like vetted through this amazing human being named Mary Lou, right? She's like, works like we trust Mary Lou. We've known Mary Lou for a long time, right? And then she like works with all the animal partners and or she knows them. And she's kind of was like, oh, you want to come to Little Earth? Well, let me ask you some questions first because you can't just come in. I really appreciate that. But uh, everyone who's come in has been very respectful, um, loves to learn, really on pace with community members, right? So like, you know, people who line up and then elders were coming. And so of course they're going to go ahead. And that's respectful and they understand that and they respect that. But the pet clinic started long before me. It was uh, somebody that I've known, a woman who was really like, I want to say who was just like, well, well, we did a lot of animal activist stuff when I was younger together. And we you know, we have like, again, like I said, a lot of sick animals because of our environment, you know, and we were, you know, living in the arsenic triangle, you know, our soil was so bad that, you know, they came in in hazmat suits and pulled up like close to 600 homes um, of our soil and our dirt because it was so contaminated, so toxic, right? And everyone thought of humans, humans, you know, the kids, the elders, everything. And then, but they don't think about our companions who are out there digging in that dirt and rolling around and, you know, suffering. They really came in and, oh my God, they provide so many services, so much education that would help say one of our animals had an allergic reaction. Like we don't have to rush to the ER, to the vet and costs, you know, maybe not be be able to afford that. But, you know, we kind of went through like, learned about baby Benadryl and how you give that per pound and, you know, just stuff like that, like really, you know, really amazing things. And another really amazing thing that they helped with was like knowing if we can give our animals Narcan, because unfortunately we live in a community where there's loaded needles on the ground, our drugs laying on the ground and, you know, our animals eat that or they step on it. We've been taught that it's safe to give them Narcan, you know, to override that overdose if that ever happened. And and it's scary, you know, because you you we're not bystanders by any means in our community. We train as young as 10 years old, our kids to give Narcan and do chest compressions because, you know, we're first responders right there. So they bring, they just brought so much to the table. And then when they come and then bring them services, that makes life a lot easier because we have a lot of people who, you know, maybe foster parents and their animals, they don't want to give up their animals, you know, but they want to help their family members take care of kids. So, you know, that's all taken care of. That's a barrier that's taken out of the way for us. So, I mean, it's just been so helpful. It's everyone just can't wait to see everyone. Also, um, our kids are allowed to come in and watch, allowed to watch things happen, to see them surgeries happen, to fix in our animals. I mean, can you imagine these babies in here watching these animals be spayed or neutered? Tell me about it, right? And it's amazing. And they have a like a kid's section where they can put on these little coats and be vets and have stuffed animals and like bandage them up. I mean, it's a whole family fun event, right? And everybody wants to uh, participate. Like they want to volunteer. We have so many volunteers, but they're never turned away. It's like, you know, hey, you want to learn how to chip an animal. So they'll teach people how to chip animals. It's just, it's just so fun. It's fun. And I, do they meet the everything? Yes. Above and beyond. They're really just so nice and it's they're just respectful. Let me put it that way. And the community 
loves and appreciates them so much. And I'm going to tell a quick story. And it's a little bit of a sad story, but we recently had a, a dog that had passed away after surgery. Lauren reached out and asked the resident, you know, do you mind if we do an autopsy, you know, to figure out? And this resident, as much as she loved her animal, she said, I will agree to that only if whatever my animal had passed away from, it don't affect the per, the student that worked on my animal. Like it does not affect them negative in a negative way. And Lauren just was blown away. She was like, wow, you know what I mean? Like that is how close the residents, how much respect the residents have for for the volunteers and the, you know, the vets, the vet, the vet, the vets and the students that come in it's like a family, you know, they come around, but we're, they're welcome with open arms. They're respected and trusted. And I think that brings me to my next point. I really want to know how you teach the vets to work with animals in your community. Cause again, we, we spoke culturally how important our animals are to us. Um, I think I will say this. I, I think the people who do come in, the students and the vets, that they're really on their game and that they're open-minded and they listen and that they don't come in like, um, even though they know a lot, they don't come in like, I know everything and this is what it needs to be, right? So one thing I think that was really important that was shared, people like love and take care of their animals in a different way right so not to come in and be like that like oh i think that's horrible what you're doing and it you know what i mean or like that's like neglect or because we have a lot of unsheltered folks who live in that area that come in too with their animals they've always been open-minded you know like they live in tents sometimes the weather's so bad and i will tell you i've known unsheltered relatives who will put their dogs up somewhere to live with someone in a warm area while they're still out in the cold. Like I've seen that happen. They just never come in judgy. That's the only thing that we've ever asked is like, don't be judgy, you know, cause everyone's different and they haven't been. The only thing is, is we just don't ever want someone telling us like, well, why didn't you do this? Or why didn't you do that? You know, like, and they've never done that. They've always been like, well, we can teach this or there's another way if you're interested. And I will say there was, there was a, one bad incident, but it was really cleared up when we were talking about the Narcan for our animals. And um, someone had made a comment like, well, if they're that sick, why don't you just bring them into the to the vet? And it's like, but you're not understanding because we can't afford it. And sometimes there's not even that ride there. And actually with the pet clinic, now we have the pet taxi. I mean, they're just coming up with so much stuff, like even before we can even think of it, because it would be like myself or other community members, like we'll drive a huge bunch of cats, you know, in our personal car to go get fixed, like when before uh, in between clinics. So that's another thing is really respectful of that is so awesome is that we just don't meet clinic to clinic to clinic. It's there's every there's a lot of stuff that happens in between. There's a constant communication and a constant work and volunteer with each other like that's happening all year round. Yeah, it sounds like there's a lot of collaborative learning from from both sides. And I, I absolutely adore that. I would like to close with we do have a way that people can donate to our animals. So we have community animals as well. They don't live in someone's particular home, but they'll be taken in into people's homes throughout extreme heat or extreme cold. Um, but they're fed all the time. And we do get a lot of food from like the, the pet food shelf and stuff like that and all the other partners. But we do have a fund we started that's they can send to the Little Earth Residents Association, Lyra, but very specifically safe for pets. 
So that that fund is was created for specifically for when something major happens and like none of our partners are able to help that we'll be able to bring an animal to a, a ER room if it's needed, like emergency right away and know that they'll be paid. You know, so we'll have partnerships with some and say, you know, if, if like Little Earth resident will okay them, we'll, they'll, we'll get your money somehow. But make sure you save that animal because never, ever do we want to see another animal die and a family just be so devastated because they couldn't, they didn't have the money, you know, to get seen. If you believe in land acknowledgement, don't just believe it. Don't just acknowledge it. Step up and support the communities that are actually needing help and work. And one could be like Little Earth with our animals, with our environmental rights and our environmental justice. And you can do that by going to Lyra, our EPNI, to find out more and learn how you can support or donate. Thank you again to Lauren Bernstein and Cassie Holmes for sharing their experiences of community-based veterinary medicine. We're going to shift a little bit to look at what health sciences research can show us about our health and our relationships with our pets. And to do that, I spoke to Dr. Pam Schreiner from the School of Public Health here at the University of Minnesota. All right, so I know you are a professor in the Division of Epidemiology and Community um, health at the School of Public Health, but could you tell me a little bit more about your background? Well, gosh, I came here in uh, 1994 from my postdoc, never left Minnesota. I, I'm a, a New Yorker, transplanted, but I've lived all over the world, actually, and I love Minnesota. Here, my role, I study um, cardiovascular disease prevention. I'm more interested in preclinical states rather than clinical states. I, primary prevention would be my, my interest. Um, I also have taught statistical methodology here for many years, SAS programming, something that is uh, exciting to me and variably exciting to students. <laughs> And you, so you've researched and written extensively, it seems like about a variety of topics related to cardiovascular health. And I know this is just kind of part of what you've, of your work, but you have touched on companion animals and their relationship to health. And so I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about that, just sort of that area of research generally a little bit, but then more specifically kind of your own work. Sure. Um, I became involved with this, it says maybe you as well are an animal lover. And I think the field, I think why I got involved with the research is I think the field has both strengths and weaknesses. The strengths is that there are a lot of people who are passionate about companion animals. And I, I make that distinction because I don't, I think the work that people do with uh, therapy animals, service animals, emotional support animals, which I don't completely understand that um, term, but um, that's quite different from companion animals. There are a lot of companion animals in this country. 
I mean, the estimates vary. I don't know, 70% of the U.S. households have some kind of pet. You know, the the statistics are interesting in and of themselves. The um, national statistics that you see on the web differ quite a bit because one major source is the APPA, the American Pet Products Association. So those are anything that you buy for your pet, including veterinary care, but also toys and food and whatever else. That number is a lot larger than the number you see from the AVMA, because sadly, a lot of people don't bring their pets in for veterinary care. But, you know, some, there are a lot of well-meaning pet lovers, and that helps and it hurts the field, because people who are passionate about their research subjects are sometimes not as objective as they should be, and that's where you get all the crazy cat lady comments or or the um, the extremes um, of the field. The flip side of that is, of course, that, um, you know, they aren't wonder drugs. Animals are not wonder drugs. They're a lifestyle factor like anything else. Um, I, th- I think it's comparable to dietary changes or increasing your exercise level or learning how to meditate or something, some kind of um, mild lifestyle factors. But when you when you distribute that over 90 million people, that's a big effect. So if you are able to move like the nation's blood pressure down by two millimeters of mercury, you're going to do a lot to reduce stroke medication use. And so those population attributable risk factors Uh, absolute risk factors rather than relative risk factors are what fascinate me because you can move large segments of the population. And some people will have huge changes, but some will have none and some will have negative. So, So that's what's interesting to me, something that's so prevalent and has the potential to impact people on a lot of different levels. They may change their diet. Uh, although there is a lot of um, evidence that people with uh, pets, sometimes their pets adopt their lifestyles. Um, there's, a, I think, something like, as I reading, 50 or 60% of our pets are obese. <laughs> and only like 30 to 50% of our animals, um, of dogs, go on walks with their owners. Yes, as someone with some elderly, they're they're not obese dogs, but my dogs are, I think, a little bit overweight and they are very old. I can I can see that too. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So um I mean the health issues, they are real and across a, a wide age range. You know, in children, certainly they help with social skills and with loneliness. And in teenagers, they give some sense of responsibility and also social integration. And with the elderly, there's a lot of interesting research on self-care. There's some evidence that elderly who have companion animals, and these are free living elderly, not institutionalized or other elderly, they eat better. Why? Because, well, Fluffy and Fido, they want their meals at, well, four o'clock in the morning, but six o'clock in the morning and five o'clock at night. 
So you're in the kitchen, you prepare a meal and you prepare a meal for yourself. And poor nutrition is one of the biggest um, risk factors for declining health in independent elderly. And they also, um, self-care is also a bit higher in the elderly. Why? Because they're afraid that they're gonna die and leave their pets alone. And of course, there is the interaction as well. So there are there are health benefits. Um, and you're a nursing doctoral student, is that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So so you know about um, the hygiene hypothesis. So that if um, children are exposed to pets, they say before the age of one or two, they're uh, and they are prone to allergies, so they have that genetic component that they're not sensitized. I think it's the um, FELD1 protein in cats and the CAN1, F1 in dogs. And all those allergens are related to each other. So it may help with grass, pollen, asthma, eczema, all sorts of um, allergic conditions. So yeah, those are those are kind of the positives of pets. Um, one of the more troubling things for myself as a methodologist is the conclusions you draw um, from pet data. I've seen in my own data that um, cross-sectionally, pet owners, dog owners, and specifically have more obesity than non-pet owners and more diabetes. And of course. Those who aren't uh, research study oriented think, oh no, what is the, what's the dog doing? Well, person goes to their physician and the physician says, you're overweight and you have diabetes, you might exercise more. So somebody goes out and gets a, a dog because they think they'll walk more. So snapshot, dogs cause diabetes. No, dogs and diabetics exist in the same time frame. And you know, it, it's hard to follow someone for 20 years to see what the influence of pet ownership has. It's expensive and it's just, you need enormous numbers. So yeah, that's, that's one of the mo more entertaining um, false hypotheses that you see from, from animal data. Yeah, that's interesting that you can see how it would be interpreted without, you know, any further thinking or context but it makes sense. Probably probably some of the other people you've talked with have talked about the, the large leaps in, in uh, conclusions that people make about animals. Yeah, I think it's, it's tempting to give them credit for a lot of things. You know, like you said, when, especially if you're, you know, you're very close to animals and you're, you're really focused on the positives in your life. It makes sense that you'd kind of make a leap like that? Uh, the American Heart Association came out with a consensus statement about pet ownerships actually, actually. And, you know, they said that the data are very inconsistent of whether they're affecting blood pressure, lipids. The only evidence that they, they gave secondary credit to is um, perhaps physical activity and dog walking but that it's not sufficient to warrant adopting an animal just for that. So yeah, for the reasons we've already talked about, there's a, there's a, a wealth of information on um, 
secondary prevention in people who have had heart attacks. And again, it depends. People who have pets and depression don't do as well as people who have pets and aren't depressed. So, you know, it's not just one thing. Yeah, I think I had seen that about um, the depression. And I mean, that it does make sense to me as a pet owner, you know, they, they can relieve stress, but they can also be a big source of stress. And, you know, whether or not how that balances out in your life at any particular time, seems like I could kind of go either way. Yeah, and um, the pet ownership may be a surrogate for reaching out and interacting with other people as well. So, I mean, I I myself would think it was wonderful to have a pet, but it's not entirely objective. Yeah, I see the picture of a cat right over your shoulder on your wall. (laughs) So, yes, that was my my girl, Klebon, and she died during the pandemic. Mm. Yeah. You know, we weren't, we weren't, um, we didn't have access to all of our friends and group meetings, but she was 20 and older for a cat, but yeah. Yeah, that's a, it can be a very big loss for a lot of people. Lots of uh, grief that, you know, one of those, you know, forms of grief that doesn't always get the recognition it, it maybe warrants because, you know. Sometimes it's easy to say, oh, it's just a pet. It's not a person. But I don't, I think that underestimates the impact of those losses a lot of times. Or overestimates people. (laughs) (laughs) True. (laughs) Yeah, but there are um, certainly with the elderly, that loss is is huge because they're, um, they often are more confined to homes and um, yeah, I mean, animals do have, give you a non-judgmental relationship, and we all live with a fair amount of judgment in our lives. That's so true. Everybody, everybody needs somebody to not judge them sometimes. <laughs> but um, in general, you know, some of the some of the negative factors there is that sense of uh, loss. It's the expense. People make decisions to stay in abusive relationships because of animals. Um, Fear that either um, their partner will hurt the animal or that they'll have to leave the animal because the shelters won't take often abused women. Um, And so they'll stay in situations longer than they should because of the animal. And people will stay in jobs that they may not love because they they need income, housing situations, because not all housing situations allow animals or that the deposit is cost prohibitive. So yeah, there are negatives. Um, what else? The elderly. Um, you could look at the uh, emergency room data on people who trip and fall <laughs> over their animals. Oh no, of course. Yeah, that makes sense. To every to every positive there for some people there's a negative. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to ask you about is just, you know, how our relationships to animals, like kind of everything else in our lives, is culturally constructed and kind of complicated by our our histories. And I guess I was just wondering if you have thoughts about kind of how the healthcare system or healthcare health researchers should kind of try to approach that cultural and emotional significance of animals 
whether, you know, if they're taking care of people or if they're, you know, engaging in research, if you have any thoughts about that. Yeah, you know, um, I do think people with chronic illnesses sometimes avoid medical care because they don't know what they'll do if they end up in a hospital situation or otherwise can't be at home or can't take care of animals, uh, can't lift the 20 pound container of kitty litter, can't get out to shop, whatever. And, you know, I hear that people say, well, you can, now you can do everything online, but my 85 year old next door neighbor, he doesn't, he doesn't understand the internet. I mean, I bring him printouts of things because he can't, maybe he could, his kids haven't wired his house up for him. So um, yeah, I think accommodating some accommodation both from the healthcare system, when when people are ill, allowing their pets to come to visit them, and housing situations that are more accommodating, um, even when people are not ill, people of lower socioeconomic status, or people who are in transition, who um, who may be living in temporary housing, or people with mental illness. Uh, I I think making a support system that's stronger for those those people would have benefit for them. I know people, um, there are people who abuse the um, ADA guidelines so that they can keep their pets. They get someone to write a, this is an emotional support animal letter for them. And I can see both sides of that. It um, it may be good for the individual, but it hurts the general group of people who are pet owners or people who really have service animals. And that, now these unregulated animals are either destructive or bite someone or whatever. Yeah, I think the blurring of that line between, um, you know, a service animal and the emotional support animal which like you, I, I'm not even totally familiar with how, how that is often um, exists in the, in the real world. I think that blurring is, uh, is made things kind of tricky for people. And there is a story about um, being on the wards with someone who was terminal um, with cancer and had a beloved um, pony. And they waited until you know, three in the morning and brought the pony up in the service elevator, dying wish. Was it against hospital regulations? Yes. Was it the right thing to do? Yes. <laughs> that's a that's a good illustration now. And when I worked at the bedside most of the time, uh, most of my years were at the burn center. In, um, and so you'd have people there for extended periods of time. And we could hardly ever have animals because of infection, infection control. But yeah, for a lot of people, that was a, that was a thing they thought a lot about. That was a, um, a thing they worried about and yeah. And as, and, you know, yet another kind of source of support that, you know, they didn't really have at that time. It was hard. I know uh, I, I sometimes mentor students through the, um, APA, American Psychological Association. And one of my advisees um, did 
did visits with animals during COVID. And what they did was they they had an iPad set up and they they did a virtual visit with people's pets. And, you know, it, it was better than nothing. You know, I, I do think that um, that One Health con concept that people in research understand One Health, but um, a better appreciation of an aging population and how the world has changed to try to accommodate all sorts of relationships would go a long way toward uh, toward helping not only animals, but people and Absolutely. And the, the resources wouldn't be that extensive. Yeah, I, I agree. Well, this has been really interesting. Just to, I, yeah, lots of things that I hadn't thought about in terms of behavior. And, you know, we think, I think the inclination is to think, oh, what, what kind of behaviors will having a pet, you know, make people do like, you know, walking or being more active and, and I think less attention is probably paid to the, what does it make people not do, such as all the examples of, you know, yeah, leaving, leaving relationship, finding different housing, like anything that would kind of jeopardize their ability to keep that animal. And that's, yeah, that's a real consideration. No, people make life sacrifices mm -hmm. for, for animals, and some of them are they're willing to make, and some of them aren't particularly good decisions. And of course, the pandemic um, between 2021 and 2022, pet ownership has declined again. People did a lot of pandemic adoption, and mm -hmm. then they either couldn't afford them or their lives changed. They weren't, they weren't able to work from home anymore. Yeah. And where did those animals go? Right. Back to the humane society or euthanized or. Well, I know we're almost at time. This has been really interesting. Was there anything else that you thought might be a good thing to add or any other question I should have asked? No, I think, um, I hope I covered something, some of what you had in mind. You know, you don't change people's minds. I, I, we start out, uh, people who think animals are important also understand that they're sentient beings and that they they love, they fear, they hate, they feel pain, whatever. And uh, I don't know how you convey that to people who don't already believe that. And so some of the things we're discussing and the distribution of resources and the accommodation and housing would have to come from people who get that. And there is a companion animal years, bill in really our Minnesota house right now. So hi, hasn't gotten to the Senate yet. Hello. Um, because so currently companion animals are Would grouped you mind with um, a bit about yourself? It's food always great and livestock. So you probably know feel about that bill trying to make its way through the Minnesota legislature. It keeps on getting pushed aside by various more important things on the uh, Yeah, that will be interesting to watch. My life was yeah. probably my father who gave me that love of animals. We lived in town with six kids and numerous foster kids, and there was always an animal to go around, whether it was a rabbit or a goat tied out back because one of the foster kids couldn't have 
dairy milk. We only ever had one dog and we never had a cat. And in my adult life, we've had up to seven cats at one time. So that didn't stick. <laughs> uh, we lived on the same farm now for 41 years and I feed 15 animals at this point, but there have been times when I have fed up to 40. I know you have a lot of life experience with the animals and that's one of the reasons why I reached out to you. So I'm really grateful for your time today. So we're gonna move on to our next question. Could you tell me a bit about how you've developed your passion for animals and working with animals? How, how many animals have you worked with? Again, it was probably my father who gave me instilled the fact he would uh, do things like find animals in a barn that weren't being taken care of and get the sheriff and we'd go get them and bring them home and rehabilitate them and then we'd have to find homes for them. That's awesome. So can you tell me a little bit more about your career? I have always worked with children in one capacity or another. I started training animals many, many years ago, right after probably in 1970. I trained my first German Shepherd puppy for my brother and it kind of took off from there where I started reading more and more and found out that we're not really training our animals as much as we are asking them to. I have learned that a good deal of the time we're not so much teaching them something new, we're going off a behavior that the animal already has. If you have what we call a circus freak at our house, I didn't teach my Jack Russell Terrier to spin around in circles. I knew how to spin around in circles. All I did was give it a name. The golden retrievers that I've worked with, I didn't teach them how to snuggle up to a person who needs that right now. That golden retriever probably could already sense that, hey, I bet that that lady could use Mia to be snuggling with her. An example of that is I was at a funeral home one time and I happened to have my dog with me and everybody was there. Nobody looked any different than the next person, but my dog walked up to the person who had lost the parent and that's where she sat. So they have an instinct. That is just so impressive. And now, you're retired, right? So I am retired. Can you tell me how you spend your free time now after devoting so much time to helping develop these companion companion animals that make such a difference? Uh, most of my time is spent, it takes about three hours to do chores at my house with the 14 animals because some of them are older in age, so they need extra care. I also work very closely with the food shelf in our community and I belong to a church that I help out when I can and I'm lucky enough to have eight grandchildren very close by ranging from four weeks old to 16 so they keep me very busy. <laughs> I love it. So retirement's treating you well. So now we're just gonna kind of shift gears and talk about some technical stuff. So what benefits of having an emotional companion animal do you feel are most important to you? I think the most important thing with having an emotional support animal versus a dog that helps with the disability 
is it gives you a reason to get up in the morning. You can't stay in bed and be in a black cloud if you know that that animal needs to be fed or that animal needs to go outside. And just the thought of, okay, I don't wanna hurt that animal, so I'm gonna get out of bed today is a real plus for many, many people who have an emotional issue going on in their life. And can you touch a little bit more on the benefits of a service animal? Well, the service animal, it, that is, to me, a service animal is totally different than an emotional support animal. Yes, the emotional support animal has a job, but an animal that is helping someone with a disability, they have a 24-7 job. Whether that is getting clothes out of the dryer or making sure that they hear the doorbell or making sure that they hear the fire alarm, a dog that is an assistance dog is on guard 24 hours a day. It can be woke up from its sleep in an instant to say, whoa, her blood sugar is low. Let's do something now. I feel like there's a lot of misconceptions between the two, and so I really appreciate that identification of roles. So thank you. So can you please provide me with the best practices for individuals who come across a service dog and its owner? I guess most service dogs will say, be wearing a coat that says, do not pet me. And even if the dog is anxious, which it shouldn't be if it's a service dog, but even if it's anxious, if you pet that dog, you have now taken its focus off the person that it is serving. So it's wonderful if you say to the person, your dog is doing a good job, but please don't bend over to pet the dog. Unless the people say, yeah, go ahead, pet it. Then you know that that person is feeling well and competent and it's okay to pet the service dog. Emotional support dogs will rarely wear a coat. They are not recognized as having a job. So, you know, I, I don't really have a, an opinion on emotional support dogs because I just, I haven't run across that many that I know of. And then can you touch a little bit on best practices for somebody who owns and cares for a service animal? I guess with the people that I've worked with, my service animals is for the most part to have that animal, they've proven that that animal is going to be a vital part of their life. There are circumstances where they can't pay a vet bill and they've just simply asked for help to pay a vet bill that, you know, for whatever reason that month, just they don't have the money. And generally, there isn't a fund out there that I know of, but in most communities, the people will step up and help. I, I don't remember a time that someone hasn't stepped up to say, yeah, we're gonna help get this dog better. So as per the Fair Housing Act, uh, housing providers are obligated to permit the utilization of animals that work, assist, and perform tasks to help people with disabilities or provide emotional support to reduce symptoms or effects of a disability as a fair as a fair accommodation. Have you ever encountered such a situation, somebody with a service animal struggled with that, or has the generally been pretty accepting? 
I've never run across anybody who has tried to say you can't have that service animal in this apartment or whatever, even if it's been the size of an animal. If it is truly a service dog and it is a certified service dog, they're just, I think most places do understand now, there is no fight with this. That dog is their right arm and you cannot separate them. The American Disabilities Act clearly states you have to allow that animal. And then is there a card or identification that they can show if somebody argues or declines that right? Did you call it an ADA card earlier? Well, there is an American Disabilities Act card, but I'll be honest with you, that was 14 years ago, but I can't imagine that it's still not there. Okay, awesome. And then how have you managed veterinary needs personally, so with your experiences working with animals? And do you have any suggestions or insight to how someone with a companion or service animal can manage their veterinary needs? I know you had mentioned asking for help within the community. thing called the Fish Network, and it is uh, social workers and counselors and maybe even teachers, pastors, priests, who can, if they're part of the Fish Network, and this is in Scott County, it may be in other counties too, I don't know, but there will sometimes be people who just can't pay that vet bill and the dog has been injured or it needs certain medications each month. And the Fish Network will put that out there and ask for a donation. And I don't really know how often it gets turned down, but if it's somebody needs $300 for a vet bill, it may be six people who gave them $50 and it goes through the county. It does not go through the person okay. or not, maybe not necessarily the county, but through the Fish Network. Moving forward, have you heard of community veterinarian clinics? I've never heard of community veterinarian clinics. The closest thing I can think of is that I see posters sometimes saying reduced veterinary care on Thursday night at seven o'clock at Tractor Farm Supply in Prior Lake. I've never checked into what it is, but they clearly post it, I think at least once a month. That's awesome, and I, I think bringing that up for people to pay attention to those things when they're at Tractor Supply or their pet supply stores is really important. So thank you for yeah. sharing that kind of like small little life hack, yeah. I guess. <laughs> yeah. And then are there any gaps of care or things that you feel the community should be aware of or any topics that we haven't touched on that you would like to circle back to or discuss further? I guess one thing that's very important to me is the feeding of pets. Again, because I work closely with the food shelf in my community, there is a real need for pet food in these food shelves. If you, to me, it seems really simple that if you add a food shelf because you need food, you also probably have a pet. And under what circumstances you walked into our food shelf, we'll never know the circumstances and we don't ask. But if you're not feeding yourself, more than likely you might have a pet at home that is not eating the best too. So when you consider, oh, I'm going to take X of this to the food shelf to donate, maybe you could take the same amount of pounds for a cat or a dog. That's awesome. I, I've never even thought of that need. That need is so important. I think sometimes you think 
pets need help with getting shots and vaccines or getting spayed or neutered, not necessarily thinking that they need food. If you're comfortable sharing, have you ever had any experiences with people who are houseless needing food or like cat food personally? I did have a very strange thing happen a few months ago where we had an excess of green beans at the food shelf and we were giving them as much as they wanted and an elderly farmer came in and he was a gentleman farmer and he said could I have a case of green beans and I meant sure and I said what are you going to do with a case of green beans and he says the only thing I have to feed my poultry right now well and these issues affect more than just residents this farmer makes poultry that in turn helps feed other people so I guess really expanding your thinking when it comes to animal care is important. As always, thank you for tuning into this month's episode. We always want to make sure our community is heard and listened to. If you have any ideas for content or topics in the future, please see our topic survey linked in the episode description below. You'll also find different links to some of the programs, organizations that our speakers have shared with us today if you have any further interest. Again, thank you and until next time.